doomspire protrudes to the surface of the void sea, the peak of the monolithic black iron structure rising a hundred feet above soft white clouds. Such artefacts, relics from an age long before the Sundering, have been found throughout the Void Sea by intrepid or foolhardy travellers. Clearly, it is claimed, they are anchored upon landmasses hidden deep within the mists. These land anchors must be impervious to the sea's corrosive gases, like the towers themselves, though none have ever been able to descend deep enough to confirm this theory. The original purpose of these impervious, towering relics is long forgotten, though most agree it was almost certainly malign in nature. Impossibly vast engines of destruction, linked and capable of unleashing unspeakable power. Or so speculation would have it. Others have posited that they are in some way related to the Seven Keys, the Black Iron World Walkers. But that way, theology lies, and in that abyss, all reason is swallowed. And, in truth, all such speculation is moot, for the doomspires, those that have been discovered at any rate, are long dormant. Whatever dread power once coursed through their conduits has been stilled and silent for millennia. These days, the doomspires are little more than curiosities, incomprehensible, impenetrable objects of antiquity, that no longer serve any purpose. The Doomspires are dead. In the Void Sea, far to the southwest of Kairos, stands one such Doomspire. It is, like all the others ever discovered, a thing of cold, unchanging permanence. And yet, unseen and unheard, the unchanging changes. An arc of purple energy crackles briefly over one angled black surface and then another. There is a low, droning hum were there any present to hear it, and were any there to touch it, they might feel the gentle vibration that begins to pulse, regular as a heartbeat. This doomspire is alive. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your games master and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the Iron Sworn Starforge ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, Mina, along with her companions Cadmus and Barbican, escaped certain destruction at the hands of a scrap pirate skyship by plunging their stolen vessel, the Dead Reckoning, into the toxic clouds of the Void Sea. Low on supplies and in need of navigational charts, they responded to a distress call, 
and discovered that the lifeless derelict sending the message was in fact a heavy bomber destroyed by saboteurs from the League of Free States. If I'm reading these charts and instruments right, we've strayed a long way off course, Cadmus. And unless we completely backtrack on our route so far, our corrective heading is going to take us straight into this area here. She jabs a finger at the section of the map, wholly blank save for the words danger, flux. Cadmus blanches. You can't mean to take us there, Mina. You must have heard the tales. Even in the desolate wilds of the Void Sea, some areas have been loosely charted. The relative positions of the vast continents have been mapped out, for example, as well as a good number of the larger floating islands. But there are vast swathes of the Void that can never be charted. Places where the laws of physics begin to break down. Where chaotic magics persist, deadly remnants of the cataclysmic event that broke the world, the Sundering places known as the Flux. In these places, time, distance and direction all lose certainty. Landmasses, from tiny floating rocks to expansive islands, move freely and unpredictably, as if possessed of their own means of propulsion. Collisions are not unheard of, the distinctions between solids, liquids and gases break down between sight and sound, the very laws of causality. And as for the things rumoured to live in such places, well, some things are best not dwelt upon. One might cross an area of the flux entirely without incident, of course, with no hint of difficulty or danger. But equally, there are tales of ships that have entered the flux only to emerge precisely where they entered a decade later, their crews horribly altered or driven raving mad by what they have encountered within. No one in their right mind would willingly enter the flux. Mina shakes her head. No, you're right. We can't go across there. Though our mission is time-critical, the risk is just too great. We'll be no use to anyone if we come out of there in twenty years' time or turned inside out. Cadmus breathes a sigh of relief, but Mina is not done. But what we can do is skirt the area. The effects are said to get worse the further in you go, so if we just keep to the edge, we should be okay. It still adds some distance to our journey, but it's better than completely retracing our steps. A smaller risk for a smaller reward. Cadmus doesn't like it, but he is forced to accept the logic of the plan. He spends the next several hours glued nervously to the portholes on the lookout for danger. Though for the longest time, nothing is visible across the unbroken stretch of white cloud below. The sun is low on the horizon, the clouds turning rich shades of peach and amber, when at last he calls out. Look there, Mina, do you see it? He points something, glinting in the distance. What is that thing? That thing, by the look of it, is a small floating island. Its upper surface lush and green in places, but primarily dominated by the waters of a still lake. A waterfall, pouring over one rocky lip, plunges endlessly into the clouds below. As they watch, they realise that something small and dark is slowly orbiting the island, a globe perhaps one-twentieth of the island's size. And as the satellite circles, the waterfall follows it, 
dragged after the irresistible lure of this tiny moon. Amazing, Mina breathes, sketching and annotating the curious sight in her journal. Where do you suppose the water comes from? An elemental, perhaps, or some sort of planar portal? And that tiny moon must be incredibly dense to exert such gravitic influence, don't you think? Cadmus is a little less enthralled. As fascinating as the thing undeniably is, if we are seeing reality warped to such a degree, don't you suppose we are perhaps a little closer to the flux than is entirely wise? Begrudgingly, Mina alters course. We began our session, appropriately enough, with the begin a session move, and the random event from that move was Peril lies ahead, or lurks just out of view. That sounded intriguing, but vague, so I asked my auto-oracle for more detail, and got Exposed Relic. Once again, I tossed this into my AI tool with the following prompt. Genre. Magitech. Interpret this prompt for a remote event, in the context of an intrigue-heavy adventure, in which skyships travel across the Void Sea. Exposed Relic. The answer has something to do with a peril that lies ahead, or lurks just out of view. And here is what I got back. A massive metal structure rises from the mist. It is a doomspire, a colossal weapon of war that could shoot beams of pure energy and destroy entire fleets. Doomspires are ancient and supposedly long dormant, but this one seems to be active. Nice. That seems just the ticket for a spooky, suspenseful intro. There may be trouble ahead. I'm not sure whether I hope the upcoming prompts lead us to encounter this Doomspire or not. It sounds pretty dangerous. Then I jumped into my travel moves. First, securing an advantage by consulting the charts. That gave me a weak hit, and then getting another weak hit on my Undertaken Expedition move. I chose to suffer momentum loss as the result of that weak hit, and used some of Starforged's oracles to envisage the floating island waypoint. That's really it for mechanics. Now that I've introduced a number of moves, I'm going to dial back on stepping through the detail of them, unless I introduce new ones. With regard to my game world, listeners familiar with Lady Blackbird the fabulous award-winning and free role-playing game created by John Harper, also author of Blades in the Dark, may well recognise some features of that world in our exploration of the Void Sea. I mentioned way back in Season 1, Session 0, that the Chained World was originally created with my gaming group several years back using the Microscope world-building game. And subsequently, when we used that world for a Seventh Sea game set in the Golden Age of Kairos, the whole city got mapped out. I think I also mentioned that when I fleshed out the city of Kairos for my use in Season 2 of this podcast, the default blade setting of Doskfall very neatly overlapped my existing fiction for my city. Mapping one to the other was an extremely easy process. Well, it turns out but it's not just the city that's a close fit. The whole idea of floating continents suspended above an open void was also a very good match for the default setting of Lady Blackbird, a game world that you could quite easily argue is a zoomed-out version of the world John Harper subsequently used for Blades. So, naturally, I've stuck with the theology, 
political factions and geography of the world my group and I created, like the various landmasses and the linking world chains. But I'm also cheerfully lifting ideas that I like from Lady Blackbird. The poisonous gas clouds that lie below the open skies of the Void Sea are a good example. Still, I don't want to be operating in too tightly defined a game world. The last thing I want for an emergent narrative is a world where every last little detail has already been filled in, catalogued and cross-referenced. I'm looking at you, Forgotten Realms. No, for a game where creative freedom is important, and particularly in a season where exploration is a key theme, there has to be room to breathe. I want the opportunity to be surprised at the secrets this world holds, inventing things as I play in response to move results and oracle prompts. Case in point, I just invented the flux in this scene, in response to needing some negative aspect in response to my undertaken expedition weak hit, and my subsequent loss of momentum to explain why they found themselves slightly delayed. And so I'm going to maintain a soft focus, a loosely sketched-in view of the superstructure that only gains detail and tangibility when our gaze falls upon a particular aspect. Talking of which, let's see where that gaze falls next. Night is almost upon them by the time they spot the boneyard. It is unclear whether the ossified remains are those of dwellers from the depths or of creatures that fly above the clouds. Regardless, the floating, slowly rotating collection of bones, some over 60 feet in length, prove the perfect spot to take cover to rest, preferable by far to flying blind overnight. And their good fortune does not end there. Safely ensconced amongst the bones, they are perfectly placed to spot the flashes of purple light when they begin to emanate from the very heart of the boneyard, flashes that might otherwise have been completely obscured from view. What do you think they could be, Mina? Cadmus asks. Danger, do you think? Mina shrugs. The source is a fair distance off and stationary. I think we're safe as we can be for now, but I am curious. It almost looks like... It takes a, a few minutes of tinkering with an assortment of delicate brass components and coloured crystal lenses, but in short order she is able to confirm her suspicions. Raw arcanicity, she nods, clearly animated by the discovery. Immensely powerful. I can't tell if it's a natural phenomenon or man-made but it certainly warrants a closer look in the morning. And so it is that, with the rising of the sun, the dead reckoning carefully weaves its way through countless tons of gigantic floating bones, approaching the hidden heart of this place, and what they find takes their breath away. The doomspire towers over the ship, the boneyard slowly rotating around it, the tapered black iron pillar almost completely hidden from view save at these close quarters. Along each flank, a series of huge vents have folded out, lending the edifice the aspect of some titanic mechanical tree. And flickering over its surface and from within the vents, arcing crackles of raw arcanicity. That's not possible, Mina whispers, feeling a thrill of both dread and fierce curiosity. The tombspires are dead. Clearly not all of them, Cadmus replies, no such fascination evidence in his voice. We need to leave, Mina, now. Nina is not so sure. 
There is danger here, certainly, but there is potentially unparalleled opportunity also. Access to untold mysteries of a forgotten age, ripe for the plucking. Hold on just a second, Cadmus. Just think for a moment. Think what we're trying to achieve. We are trying to stop a full fleet of skyships from waging their war. And here we find ourselves face to face with what looks like a fully operational fleet killer. And that's before we ask ourselves the question, how and why has this doomspire reactivated after all this time? Could it be that one of the forces in this conflict are responsible? Or what if... Cadmus, are you even listening? Cadmus is not. Instead, the devotant is staring in growing horror out of the forward viewport and down at the clouds below. Nina, there's something down there. Something big. And that's when the sky squid, fully 100 feet in length, its mass of tentacles thrashing in fury, bursts from the clouds. A legendary predator from the lower depths, a ship-killing terror from the wildest tales of sky sailors, brought suddenly and horrifyingly to life. And then, before either of them can react, a second emerges, and then a third. All of them converging with deadly intent upon the dead reckoning. Oh dear, everything seemed so peaceful and safe, the future pregnant with opportunity, and then straight out of the blue, things careened badly sideways and out of control. I mentioned a while back that I thought my good fortune was a little too good to last, and with utter predictability, so it proved. Let's backtrack a little to see how things ended up where they did, with our protagonists moving in short order from a state of idyllic calm to one of gut-wrenching pant-wetting terror. I started my scene, predictably enough, with an undertaken expedition move. And as usual, I rolled plus wits, and scored a total of nine on my action dice. And that was set against two ones on my challenge dice, a strong hit. But that wasn't all. Starforged also has the concept of matches. If you roll the same number on each of your challenge dice, the effect is amped up. For some moves, rolling a match even has specific mechanical effects. In this case, my action roll of 9 was set against a pair of 1s, and that made it a super strong hit. The strong hit effect for this move says, on a strong hit, you reach a waypoint. Envisage the location and mark progress per the rank of the expedition. Well, I rolled to get some details of the waypoint and got the following. Waypoint is part of the Void Sea, a debris field. The sighting is a creature boneyard. And an opportunity. Advanced warning of an environmental threat. For that last element, I decided, without really direct support from the rules, that my match in this case was going to grant me a plus one on a subsequent move to explore this upcoming waypoint just because it felt right. I also decided, given the looming threat that had been introduced in my starter session move, that the environmental threat had to be my active Doomspire. And so I rolled the Explorer Waypoint move with the Doomspire as the subject of that move. I rolled plus wits and plus one because of the match, and I got a very respectable total of eight. Not too shabby at all. And then I compared that roll 
to my challenge dice. A pair of nines. Not only had I rolled a miss, but I'd rolled a miss with a match. Here's what the Explorer Waypoint move has to say about misses. On a miss, you encounter an immediate hardship or threat and must pay the price. On a miss with a match, you may instead confront chaos. The confront chaos move is seriously bad news, introducing all sorts of nasty, unpredictable crap into your story and dropping it on you from a great height. And so, of course, I couldn't resist. I rolled three times on the Confront Chaos table, and the outcome was a gaggle of monumental sky squid, not to mention a bunch of other squirrely shit that may or may not come up in play if my party lasts long enough to encounter it. Let's be clear here, my crew have a truly deadly encounter on their hands. One sky squid is more than enough of a challenge for a heavily armed military vessel. Three of the buggers taking on a single light dropship sounds like massive overkill. The Dead Reckoning and her crew are badly overmatched. Let's see if they can figure out a way to dig themselves out of the mess that Mina has got them into. Stations! Mina hollers, leaping into the pilot seat and sending the Dead Reckoning into a vertiginous dive. Cadmus, Barbican, man the cannon turrets and strap in! The small ship plunges directly towards the tentacled creatures, a move that succeeds in startling and scattering the creatures, who are clearly more used to their prey running away than turning and heading straight for them. I've bought us a few seconds, Mina calls back as the squid bank away, appendages undulating in confusion. Mina pulls them neatly out of the dive, looping the ship under what appears to be a vast floating femur, then begins to climb hard. The squid, having swiftly recovered, are hard on her heels. I don't think I'm going to be able to use that trick again, and they had the advantage in speed. How are those guns coming? In response, Barbican unleashes a crackling bolt of energy from the light cannon mounted on the underside of the vessel, though there is no corresponding shot from the top-mounted cannon. Whenever you're ready, Cadmus, Mina yells, twisting the ship into a tight barrel roll as she threads her ship through the cavity of a huge ribcage. Open fire! Mina, I can't, Cadmus calls back. My vows to the thrice-blessed Ankra. These are innocent creatures. Mina curses under her breath. She'd completely forgotten the devotant's oaths. Pacifism, it turns out, is not a particularly effective quality in a ship's gunner. Okay, change your plan, she yells. Don't target the squid, target the bones. This floating cemetery is already... Hold on, banking left. A near impassable maze. Let's leave a wholly impassable one in our wake instead. Both cannon open up, the bones behind them exploding into clouds of wildly spinning shards. I think it's working, Mina, Cadmus calls down. We're slowing them down. Mina pulls back on the throttle, taking the ship into a steep climb up one side of the looming doomspire, weaving her way through orbiting bones. She and the others are crushed back into their seats. Okay, you two, I want you to target either side of the path we just took. Close that door behind us. The cannons open up again, and even through the heavy floatwood walls of their ship, they can hear the wail of frustrated squid song behind them. There is a moment of heady elation, a brief sense that they can open up a substantial lead on their pursuers. And then, the third sky squid, the one that, unnoticed, had been holding a parallel course to their own, 
rounds the edge of the doom spire and hammers into them. Tentacles wrap fast around the little ship and her timbers begin to groan alarmingly under the pressure. And Mina knows, with cold certainty, that their vessel is instants away from being crushed to kindling. And so we get our first taste of Starforged combat. As with most things in Starforged, there are specific moves that are triggered when you find yourself in a combat situation, starting with the initiating combat move, Enter the Fray. That move states, When you initiate combat or are forced into a fight, envisage your objective and give it a rank. I set my objective as Escape the Sky Squid and gave it a rank of Formidable, which is the default level. I could easily have set the rank higher here, given the amount of danger involved, but the higher the rank, the longer the battle tends to be, and I wanted to keep this engagement fairly punchy. Then roll to see if you are in control. If you are in the thick of it, at close quarters, roll plus iron. Mina has only one in iron, but she still managed a weak hit, which meant that she could start the conflict in the better of two states in control. That means that she has a degree more agency in events. She is acting rather than reacting, and that changes the combat moves available to her. Next, I envisaged Mina coming up with a plan to slow their pursuers, and I selected the gain ground move. This says, when you are in control and take action in a fight to reinforce your position or move towards an objective, envisage your approach and roll. If you are coordinating a plan, studying a situation, or cleverly gaining leverage, roll plus wits. You can consider this move the combat equivalent of the secure and advantage move. Once again, I got a weak hit, which left me in control, and with a choice between marking progress, gaining momentum, or adding plus one to my next roll. Given my goal was to gain enough progress to make a progress move to attain my goal of escape, I picked the Mark Progress option. One box filled out of ten. Then I got a bit cocky. I decided I was going to press home my advantage by shutting off the route behind me, and I used the Strike move to do it. When you are in control and you attack at a distance, roll plus edge. I got a weak hit, which allowed me to mark progress twice, but the weak hit outcome also says you expose yourself to danger. You are in a bad spot. I mentioned that there were two states to be in during combat, in control and the less desirable, in a bad spot. Well, Mina and Co are in a bad spot now, for sure. We're going to have to find out how, or even if, they can get out of it next time. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help 
you can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. You can email me at TheLoneADV at gmail.com or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com. You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com, where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. I also include a link to a full episode transcript. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening. <laughs>